Before we get into this episode, some quick housekeeping that's too important to leave until later. First, this Thursday night... It's the 8pm Quiz of the Year 2021. That's streaming live on YouTube starting at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time this Thursday, the 30th of December, which uh, which is tomorrow. Sorry about the, uh, uh, the, the late notice, but you should be following me on Twitter. Please join us 8pm tomorrow night. Also, there's a possible crowdfunding campaign underway, the 9pm Summer Series 2022, to fund more special guest episodes of this podcast. We've already reached target one, which is fantastic because that locks in four episodes in January and February, but we want more. So head over to the 9pmedic.com slash summer 2022 and do the needful. I'll tell you more about that a bit later. And now, on with the show. The following episode of the 9pm Edict contains strong language, politics, doom and gloom, and surprisingly few sexual references. Wednesday, the 29th of December, 2021. Uh, This is the final episode of this podcast for this year, and what a shambles of a year it's been. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit. And there's stuff about Scott Morrison. I'm sorry. But we'll also hear about what men are worried about. Every male character or good role model must have a female replacement. And we'll hear what one person thinks the US military really needs. We need a military full of type A men who want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Triple Boxing Day Landfill of Lamentations. Uh, Because it was going to be on Boxing Day, but it's now three days later. Uh, Except maybe that means it should be the Quadruple Boxing Day? Eh, give a fuck. This whole episode seems a little introspective anyway. It might seem a bit strange to start talking about this in summer, but a couple of months back... I bought a new cardigan because A, I need some more clothes and B, in combination with some other layers of clothing in Earth, the tones, it looked quite cool, except it didn't. I don't look cool at all. The cardigan is a failure. So H&M Hennes and Moritz AB, clothing company of Stockholm, Sweden, I have a few choice words for you. Your catalogue is fake news. It is deceptive advertising. I bought this cardigan in good faith, sure, and certain that I would look as cool as the photograph in the catalogue, but no. Okay, well, look, uh, the model wearing the cardigan, okay, he was about 24 years old, six foot four and lean, and I am... uh, None of those things, but the cardigan should still work. I am disappointed. (sighs) All right, I don't look like that model. I'm also disappointed 
Uh, in Professor Raina McIntyre, who among other things heads uh, the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute, indeed her Twitter handle is Global Biosecurity. Now, over the last two years, she's gained quite the media profile as an expert on the pandemic, in part, I think, because her scary predictions give journalists some ammunition to criticise the government for not acting promptly. Instant controversy, right? Well, on Boxing Day, she tweeted about the Omicron variant, and here are her words. First it came for the elderly, and I didn't speak up because I am not elderly. Then it came for health workers, and I didn't speak up because I am not one. Then it came for the disabled, and ditto. Finally it came for me, and there was no one left to speak up for me. Hashtag Omicron. Really, Raina, this is how your your brain works. It's Boxing Day. It's six sixteen a.m. That's when the tweet uh, the tweet was sent. Uh, what does her brain do? I know. I'll make a totally inappropriate comparison of the COVID response to the Holocaust. Press send. Raina McIntyre has professor in her title, but her her status as a media dialer doomsayer is a disgrace. I shouldn't have to explain why casually using the Holocaust as an analogy is a bad thing, unless you're talking about another actual genocide. But in case you need a refresher, I I have linked to a couple of things on the website. Uh, There's an article called Why Holocaust Analogies Are Dangerous. That's from the, the US Holocaust Memorial Museum. And one called Inappropriate Comparisons Trivialize the Holocaust. That's from the Anti-Defamation League, which is, uh, well, it's run by Jews and it's about fighting anti-Semitism. And why not? It concerns me, though, that we're two years into the pandemic and by now maybe responsible media outlets should review what their commentators have said in the past to see how well they matched the eventually reality and grade them accordingly. And, and there should be a continual process in all fields, of course. Um, you know, why have on these commentators if they they never actually get it right? Um, as an aside, one thing uh, that I really liked about Deloitte's uh, annual media and internet industry forecasts was the, that each year they did look at the previous report and they noted where they were wrong. And then they tried to identify the factors they missed. And that was their part of each report as, as it went on. I, I hope they still do that. And really, everyone should do that. But, you know, not the news outlets. Going for the controversy is a powerful drug and going for the, quote, balance, unquote, is basically a brain injury. Friend of the pod, Mark Newton, said that eventually Raina McIntyre will get COVID herself and when it happens, she'll spend two weeks in isolation with nothing to do but tweet. The Holocaust lean-in is just the thin end of the wedge. We ain't seen nothing yet. Well, put it like that, and now I am so here for this. The unhingening will be magnificent. Which reminds me, I need to do something with the domain I registered, hingeometer.com. If you've got any suggestions, let me know. In a way, Raina McIntyre's unhinged comment about Omicron was a perfect match for 2021. Um, early this morning, I was chatting with a friend in London, and he asked whether the past year uh, had been good for me. 
And he said he felt like he's accomplished nothing. And you know what? I I feel the same. I went to a couple of social events just before Christmas and it, it, it felt weird. Uh, that's all down to the COVID thing, obviously. Uh, but I think after two years, uh, a lot of people have just been ground down. They're just flat. And, of course, you know, I did go and did some shopping on Christmas Eve, got a contact COVID alert thingy. Uh, Christmas shopping is dangerous. So many bad things have happened this year, of course. I'm not going to list them all, but I should mention, well, the slow collapse of Scott Morrison's facade of mild competence. Uh, I'll come back to that uh, a little later. Global supply chains were disrupted. Uh, The United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan and therefore Australia's uh, was a shit show. The COP26 climate summit was a failure. Anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists and Nazis joined forces. Friendly Geordies was a thing. Billionaires were a thing too. Conservatives dragged Dr. Seuss and Mr. Potato Head into the culture wars. That's enough. I'll get depressed. You don't want that. Thing is, though, despite me not looking cool, the cardigan is still a perfectly good cardigan. It, it, it's a fine cardigan. It just doesn't look as cool as in, as, as in the advertising. The year 2021, not so much. No, 2021 was a cunt of a year. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Speaking of cunts, what about men, eh? Haven't men been a pain in the ass this year? Um, I mean, here's some semi-random examples, which you, you may have missed. In the UK, there's a Conservative MP by the name of Nick Fletcher, and uh, he seems to be concerned about women now getting role models. He said this. Everywhere, not at least within the cultural sphere, there seems to be a call from a tiny yet very vocal minority that every male character or good role model must have a female replacement. One only needs to look at the discussions surrounding who will play the next James Bond. And it's not just James Bond. In recent years we have seen Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, Luke Skywalker, The Equaliser, all replaced by women. And men are left with The Craze and Tommy Shelby. Is there any wonder we are seeing so many young men committing crime? I mean, that's that's it, obviously. There is no male Doctor Who anymore. Um, therefore, better go out and knock off a bottle shop. Arset. Uh, then there's, uh, in the United States, a right-wing radio pundit. That's, that's kind of a, a light description. A guy called um, Jesse Kelly. He goes on to the Tucker Carlson show on Fox News because, of course, he does. Uh, he, he is deeply concerned about women in the military. Well, what we're watching is the destruction of the U.S. military, and what we're going to end up seeing, Tucker, is thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Americans die. That's Those are the stakes right. of the game we're playing here. We don't need a military that's woman-friendly. We don't need a military that's gay-friendly, with all due respect to the Air Force. We need a military that's flat-out hostile. We need a military full of type A men who want to sit on a throne of Chinese skulls. But we don't We don't have that now. We, we can't even get women off of naval vessels. That should be step one, but most of them are already pregnant anyway. I think Mr. Jesse Kelly 
um, has a few things wrong with him, uh, and certainly a few things wrong with his worldview there. All the women on naval vessels are pregnant, or most of them. That's what you call an alternative fact. When I was uh, researching this little bit, um, there's a, an author, Joe Kasabian, who said that uh, his favourite made-up metric for masculinity uh, is from talk show host Adam Carolla, who tweeted back uh, in August 2020, more American males now wear bracelets than eat stew. More American males now wear bracelets than eat stew. Eating stew is what real men do. Oh, for fuck's sake. Even though this is the last episode of The Edict for 2021, I'm calling it the first episode of the summer series 2022. Um, There will be, as I mentioned at the front, some special guest episodes in January and February because the crowdfunding campaign has reached its first target, which it did on Christmas Day, which was kind of a a nice present. And that locks in four episodes for, for January and February. And we're currently 70% of the way to target two, which locks in two more episodes. And look, if it goes well, there may be some other kinds of episodes as well. I haven't locked in any guests yet, although I'm still intending to do that episode on submarines. I'm I'm slowly tracking down people who can talk about that. And I'm also happy to hear your suggestions for potential guests. I'll be starting to uh, contact people and uh, pencil them in next week. If you'd like to pledge your support to the 9pm Summer Series 2022, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash summer2022 and do the needful. Uh, your generosity, dear listener, it's uh, what makes this podcast possible, he mumbles a little bit. Uh, meanwhile, for this episode in particular, it's thanks to Ben McLaughlin, Dave Gorkacher, uh, whose Edict 02 Schooner annual subscription uh, has been renewed. Frank Filipponi, uh, who has an Edict 02A premium pint annual subscription. I, I should just get rid of all those stupid titles. Uh, and plus one person who chooses to remain anonymous. Thank you all. Now, if you don't want to do any of that, I would still be grateful if you just told your friends and family and enemies and and colleagues and everyone about uh, this podcast and especially the episodes you like. Uh, more listeners, more listeners would be good. One of the things uh, that people who support the podcast can get if they're sufficiently. Uh, generous, is trigger words to throw into the conversation, which they choose and then throw in. Uh, Now, I have to begin this with an apology uh, to Paul Williams, who's uh, a bit of a regular supporter of the pod. Uh, Back in September, I pulled out the trigger word from the glass jar of transparency, and the trigger word was procrastination. Uh, But in a very clever little bit of wit, I said this. Here's a second one from a Paul Williams, get a supporter of the pod. Thank you very much. Uh, his trigger word is procrastination. But I'll, I'll 
deal with that one next episode. Yeah, ha, 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 very funny. Uh, and then, of course, I didn't deal with it in the next episode because because of procrastination. Uh, it's a very triggering word. Um, in terms of, though, how trigger words work, though, and, and triggering the conversation, well, it's just me this time. And, and I'm therefore thinking about the way procrastination affects my life. One of the issues is that, um, you know, I do have uh, various kinds of mood disorders. I mean, we all do these days in a sense. Um, But getting the motivation to start doing things can be quite tricky. Procrastination isn't quite the same as that, though. It's just kind of leaving off doing things even when they could easily just be done. Um, Although it's kind of... Works on a big scale too. Over the the last nine or ten days, I've actually been down in Sydney rather than up in the Blue Mountains. Uh, some of you may know that I cat sit for a friend uh, in Sydney. Well, I've cat sat for various people, but this particular cat hates me uh, because it's figured out that when I turn up and stay overnight, it means its humans are about to disappear, and he doesn't like that, so he hisses at me. That's uh, basically how I spent my Christmas. And I've been doing a lot of pondering. It's It's been a very introspective time. And I think, I mean, this, the Christmas and start of a new year is kind of like that anyway, right? Um, uh, but because of the lockdowns, I, you know, we haven't been doing as much socialising. One thing I have noticed uh, and thought about this year is that I procrastinated the whole development of my life for about a decade now. Actually, more than a decade. It's coming up to 11 years. Um, Me living in the Blue Mountains was only ever intended to be a temporary thing, just for a couple of weeks. Um, And and coming up to 11 years later, I'm still there. I I mean, it's a deal that worked both uh, for me and uh, uh, the the owners of Bungery Cottages, um, uh, and it's just been too hard to change. I've I've really not sat down and thought through uh, how I would go back to living in a city, because for me, I think it would be a lot healthier if I lived in a city, Uh, and uh, it costs more to live in the country. Uh, but then I'd have to pay rent in the city. So there you go. It, it, it is, it is a, a thing that I've just decided it's too hard to deal with. Uh, so, I, yeah, I've procrastinated. Um, that just turned into a little personal reflection, didn't it? I'm not quite sure that that helps. But I do know that the way to deal with procrastination is to just divide things up into little bite-sized chunks rather than being overwhelmed by the whole thing that you have to do. Just work out what the first step might have to be and just do that. And then you'll feel a bit better having done that and you might go straight on to do the the second bit. Uh, I was putting off writing a a whole technical specification thing recently because oh, I, I just can I still write them? I haven't written one in a while. Uh, whatever, it's so much work. Will I will I have the focus to do it? 
I once I actually started by by thinking, well, there's several different sections to this. There's about half a dozen sections. So I'll just do one. I'll just do one section. I'll check the notes and write that down. And that turned out to be like 10 minutes, 15 minutes of work. And the whole thing took a couple of hours. Once I got over that initial fear of starting the thing. Some of you may have heard of um, a thing called Getting Things Done. It's a methodology uh, developed by a guy called called David Allen um, for getting things done, about how to structure your time and so on. I won't go into that. You can look it up. It's, it's an interesting uh, system and I have used it myself in the past. But one important lesson from it is if you have a stack of things to deal with, like in your inbox or however you organise your stuff, don't ever, don't ever put something down once you've picked it up. If you take the thing off the top of your inbox, you have to deal with it. Don't put it back and go, I'll do that later. Deal with that one object. doesn't matter um, the order it happens in. Just do it. And, you know, you'll find that having started on it, you'll get over that. Life lessons from Stilgarian. Oh, you're so fucked. Now, let's pull another trigger word out. I'm down in Sydney. I did not bring the glass jar of transparency, so I have, as you've heard in the past, the Chemist Warehouse Plastic Bag of Translucency. It's all folded up bits of paper in there. I have not looked to see what I'm pulling out. This may suddenly become the most boring ad lib around. I'm unfolding a bit of paper now. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, (laughs) This trigger word is from Silvano. Thank you, Silvano. And the trigger word is Stita... Pig, Stetopigia, Stetopigia. Uh, allow me to um, fucking Google that. I should have, um, I should have Googled it and like at the beginning and written it down on the bit of paper so I didn't have to do this now. Stetopigia is the state of having substantial levels of tissue on the buttocks and thighs. This build is not uh, confined to the gluteal regions, but extends to the outside and front of the thighs and tapers to the knee, producing a curvaceous figure. The term is from the Greek stea, meaning tallow, like fat, and uh, a Puget, Puget maybe, meaning rump, which is just, it's Greek for fat ass. Now, I need to say, I, I mean, I have a certain level of tissue on the buttocks and thighs because, uh, as I said before, I'm not lean six foot four and 24 years old. But this is a particular... Um, condition, I'll say, a state of being uh, which certain people uh, have around the world uh, 
uh, it says in the Wikipedia, it was a characteristic of a population which once extended from the Gulf of Aden to the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. Uh, and uh, the peoples known as the Khoisan and the Pygmies may be remnants of that population. Uh, so if you do look at uh, photographs or sculptures of these people, uh, they do have quite a um, fat thighs and their buttocks do uh, extend a fair way to the back. It's it, it's an interesting shape. It's, it's certainly something that... Um, was a thing, and I'm also seeing here now on uh, the Wikipedia that in Victorian England, uh, freak shows, touring freak shows, uh, often um, had exploited women with this figure. Uh, the most well-known example was a South African Khoikhoi woman named Sache Birl Birtman, Sache Birtman, who had that. What does this trigger in my thought? One is, uh, as as it says, this is a natural variation of body shape and yet people are being judged on that. I would like to say that my body shape is just a natural variation too, but I am distinctly judged on that body shape. I suppose... I suppose we have these these remnants of what must have been a, a kind of quite wide variation in the shape of human beings over oh, tens of thousands of years, millions of years, millions of years, I don't know, billions and billions of years. And, and what we have now is, um, well, it's, it's just just what we have left. On a related note, I do note that, that of course, people who uh, came from or peoples that came from and had a relatively low-protein diet moved to a culture uh, where there is a high-protein diet for kids and suddenly the next generations are much, much taller. I mean, the classic case of an East Asian migrant to Australia. Uh, you know, parents or grandparents might be... Uh, of a certain height and not a great height, uh, but their kids growing up in Australia are suddenly <laughs> very much taller. That's a thing. I I don't notice them getting this sort of fat ass effect. Touring women as a as a freak show is a bit off. Victorian England was really weird like that. Um, uh, that they saw all these wonders of nature, but then. Go and gawk at them. Stay at a Pidgeot. Uh, look, thanks, Silvano. That's confused me a bit. I'm going to pull out another one. Stay a Pidgeot. Words that no one knows. Ah, Paul Williams again. Foundation. Ah. <sighs> Do we talk about makeup? Do we talk about the foundations of a building? Uh, do we talk about charitable foundations? Plural. There's the Isaac Asimov. Um, uh, science fiction books have been done as a TV series too, haven't they? Which I haven't look, looked at. 
I'm going to zoom back. I, I'm in a very introspective mood uh, uh, the last couple of days, as you might have. Uh, well, you can hear it in the recording so far. I'm not. I'm not shouty. I'm. I'm kind of just chatting, I suppose. But it fits in with my other thoughts about having to get the foundations um, of your life right. I think. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people think about this in terms of, of money, um, <laughs> with the real estate market being what it is. Uh, but if you don't have uh, that kind of, I don't want to say stable income because that that means becoming an employee or whatever, but at least um, a plan or something, then you're forever stressed about that and having to work on that. Um, uh, I'm reminded, oh, this is this is a bit of a tangential jump, but I'm reminded of how being poor is very expensive and time-consuming um, because, you know, you haven't got the car fixed, you can't afford a house uh, really handy for public transport like a fast train or, or whatever. Uh, so uh, if a, a parent has to take a, a kid to hospital, uh, that, that becomes a thing that happens with a long bus journey uh, or maybe they have to walk. And so that whole process ends up taking, I don't know, twice as long as it might uh, for a person with more money. Um, shoes are a fabulous indicator. I'm going to write an essay about this at some point. About, uh, I mean, others have done it, but about how poor is is expensive, uh, because people will say, "Oh, but you know, if you buy a decent pair of shoes, as opposed to I don't know, an indecent pair of shoes, stilettos, I suppose, um, or ones with like boobies on the end." A decent pair of shoes will last years, but it'll also cost you, what, $100, $200. I don't know. I haven't bought proper shoes for a long time. Um, if, you, if you don't have the cash flows and you're living from paycheck to paycheck, then you'll be buying $10 or $20 shoes from a you know a discount supermarket and they'll, they'll, they'll last a little while and then you have to get some more. And... Over over the time, you will pay more for a, an endless series of, of cheap shoes than you will for more expensive shoes. But you can't um, you can't afford the more expensive ones, even though in the long term uh, they will be cheaper. Same goes uh, for buying uh, produce you know, in bulk. Uh, yes, if you if you buy in bulk and stock up your pantry, you will save money. But only if you have the money to pay up front for those things. These foundational issues, he says, coming back to the trigger word, really have to be solved. And that's why I think looking at things like a universal basic income, as we're calling it these days, is an interesting uh, an interesting option. Uh, and I think it's obscene that anyone trying to live on a Centrelink payment because they haven't got a job and may indeed be unemployable um, are paid so much below the poverty line. I mean, the poverty line is defined as the minimum amount of money you need to have coming in 
to have what is a normal life in society. And it, it can't just be, you know, a supplement that, that then stretches out for years because to have a normal life includes having provision you know, for dentistry, the occasional holiday, to to travel to a relative's funeral in another state. Um, and if you don't have all these things, your life is impoverished. I don't see that our government is terribly interested in getting the foundations right for everyone. In car parks, there's a nice car park up at... Um, being built up at Emu Plains. Is that one of those federally government, federally, federally funded government grants for commuter car parks? <sighs> build, build a train line, put more buses, things like that. Uh, thank you, Paul Williams, for the foundation. And uh, there'll be more. Trigger words in the next episode. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. <coughs> Elephant stamp time. Uh, I was going to say each episode of this podcast, many episodes of this podcast, some episodes of this podcast, I award... Elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking, usually sarcastically. And I have four for you today, uh, and they all relate to primarily men, uh, because of course they do. And the first elephant stamp goes to uh, the anti-vax, anti-lockdown protesters in London earlier this month uh, because they attacked the Apple Store in London, shouting "Shame on you!" Uh, to do with vaccines and microchips, because apparently uh, they think Bill Gates owns Apple. Um, because Bill Gates has been a leading advocate and funder of COVID nineteen vaccine development. Uh, curiously. Uh, the Microsoft store. There is a Microsoft store in London, and it's quite close to the Apple Star, uh, Apple Store rather. But um, uh, the protesters didn't seem to um, work that out. And as uh, MS Power User magazine reminds us, uh, Bill Gates resigned as CEO of Microsoft in two thousand and eight. Oh, retired rather. So more than a decade ago. Um, Apple, Bill Gates, technology, somehow microchips, who can tell? Uh, so an elephant stamp for the anti-vax protesters in London. Uh, the second elephant stamp of approval goes to Bradley John Hill, who's the licensee of a pub in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, um, who has repeatedly breached public health orders and refused to turn away unvaccinated patrons. Uh, well, he um, walked from the Singleton Courthouse uh, recently to, the, to cheers, applause and shouts of justice from a throng of placard-waving supporters. Uh, this uh, report comes from the Newcastle Herald. Um. But that was the uh, the reaction outside the courtroom. 
um, where they thought, yes, he's won. Um, but inside the courtroom, uh, Mr. Mr. Hill, Bradley John Hill, uh, decided to do the whole sovereign citizen, sovereign defence and deny that the court um, had any power over him and uh, even that he was there in the courtroom. Uh, so Mr Hill uh, went to the court, did not wear a mask, um, approached the microphone uh, uh, because, you know, that was his case uh, and uh, he was asked if he was Bradley John Hill and he replied, Mr Hill is not in the court. I am Bradley John. Um, so then the magistrate, Mark Richardson, said, well, get the sheriff to have Mr Hill called outside, um, even though, like, he was standing right there. Mr Hill said nothing. Um the magistrate, and I quite like this for Magistrate Richardson, um, the magistrate then asked the police prosecutor what she wanted to do and she made an application to have the matter dealt with in Mr Hill's absence, again despite him standing there. Uh, so he was then convicted in his absence and fined a total of $3,000 uh, for three separate breaches of the public health order. Um the rest of it is just stupid, but is replying that he's not there. But I, I like the magistrate did say um, that, uh, uh, well, when Mr Hill began speaking, uh, the magistrate asked him if he had actually read his affidavit um, and uh, the magistrate replied, I do not recognise you, sir. You are not Bradley John Hill. Because um, you just said you weren't. Um, it's just stupid. Um, anyway, he was warned not to do it again, but I think he's been doing it again. Bradley John Hill, second elephant stamp. The third one, um, this is actually a bit dark. Um, this goes to John Nellis, N-E-L-I-S... Um, in Victoria, uh, he pled guilty to the negligent manslaughter of his friend Christopher Jacobs uh, with a double-barreled shotgun that he didn't know was loaded. Um, this is this is a bit confusing, um, but he shot and killed his friend who was wearing a bulletproof vest uh, that hadn't been properly fitted with its anti-ballistic panels. Um, so broadly speaking, what happened is he pointed the shotgun at this guy. He didn't know the shotgun was loaded, fired it at the guy with the uh, the bulletproof vest, except the bulletproof vest wasn't bulletproof because it wasn't properly fitted, um, so the guy died. The bit I like about the news, well, like about the news story is Mr Nellis, the... Uh, the gunman, I suppose, in this. Uh, the Guardian says, quote, Nellis consumed the drug GHB before he and a friend drove to Jacob's caravan to either swap or sell him a double-barreled shotgun. Uh, the 38-year-old saw his good friend was wearing a bulletproof vest 
Uh, he pointed the shotgun at his chest and abdomen and fired without checking to see if it was loaded. Um, doing G before going out to sell a shotgun, that is... <sighs> yeah. John Nellis. Elephant stamp for you. And the final one, of course, goes to that wonder of of excellent thinking, uh, the host of InfoWars, Mr. Alec Jones, who recently made this statement. They've engineered all of these nanoparticles that are microchips, microscopic microchips, some of which you can see with the naked eye, some of which you can't, that they spray onto all of the food to, quote, track it and make sure it's safe. Good one there, mate. Uh, that's Alex Jones, of course. I think I said Alec Jones before, um, as opposed to Alan Jones, um, who was uh, and is a singer. <sighs> Elephant stamps of approval. That's all so depressing. Scott fucking Morrison, the Prime Minister of Australia for the time being. Uh, I, I have to talk about him as we, we come to the end of uh, 2021 because, of course, uh, people have started to wise up to, well, the fact that he's a liar, the fact that he avoids work as much as possible, uh, the fact that he, well, he's just, he's just not very competent really, is he? I'll play a couple of grabs here to um, remind you. These are these are some of my recent uh, favourites. Uh, this clip is from Ten News uh, when Scott Morrison was uh, visiting to his brewery in Sydney uh, to praise the workforce, um, uh, but it was uh, a little awkward. And to see Lizzie, um, Giselle, who's come from um, Venezuela, and of course Claire from Ireland. Um, of course, there's going to be uh, an Irish girl here in a brewery um, with their brewing skills. Yeah, yeah, the Irish—they'll—they'll all—they'll all be drinking, don't you know? I can't do Irish accents of any kind. Just, just words tumble out of his mouth, uh, and then uh, recently he was announcing uh, having uh, signed a defence uh, agreement with South Korea. Uh, first up, he um, uh, kind of had a bit of a slip over our shared experience of war. Our ties were forged during the Vietnam, during the Korean War. Uh, Korea, Vietnam, commies, you know, a lot of them. Who knows? And then, and then moments later, in the same speech, he seemed to get a bit confused about which Korea he'd signed up with. And so that is enabling our economies to open up. And we look forward in particular to that day, President Moon, to the day that the Korean Peninsula uh, will have peace and stability. Under either President Kim or President Moon, one of the two, possibly both, um, we've signed a defence agreement with one of them. I think with South Korea. And I think, therefore, with President Moon. Also this month, uh, and this one is is kind of a thing, um, 
Morrison did a speech at, uh, where was it, Terrigal, um, up on the central coast of uh, New South Wales. And uh, a journalist asked a question about um, electorates, uh, you know, with Liberal uh, uh, MPs receiving grants, um, whereas others didn't. Uh, So the journalist asked, Prime Minister, this electorate has received 14 million in grants funding, whereas up in Debell it's only uh, 2.4 million. Can you honestly say that the coalition's allocation of grants funding is fair and ethical? What I can say is that when we make a commitment to do something, we do it. And all the commitments uh, that the member for Robertson, uh, the the, the member for McKellar, uh, the member for Cook, um, where we have stood and where we have made commitments, we meet them. And that's the electoral process, and we've been very transparent about that. I've seen the selective analysis that has been done that doesn't cover all the programs. I also say this, that uh, it's important that we support communities that have been affected by natural disasters, most in particular drought. I mean, the reason so much funding has gone to support uh, electorates um, that are held by coalition members substantially is because coalition members hold the seats in rural and regional areas that have been so comprehensively impacted previously by the drought. And so I'm not going to make any apologies for supporting drought-affected and flood-affected communities, and I'm always going to deliver on the commitments that I make in an election, which is exactly what we have done. But, asked the journalist, those electorates that did not vote for the coalition and non-marginal, are they being punished? No. Are the voters there being punished for voting Labor? But I can tell you, if they support our candidates, the commitments I make will be delivered. Except, you know, that nah, they won't be. I mean, we still know that people who have meant to had bush, bush fire relief funding to have their homes rebuilt are still living in you know, caravans two years later. Good one, Scott. Speaking of commitments, it's interesting to notice that uh, the MIFO, the Mid-Year Economic and Financial Outlook, or mini-budget, uh, as, as they call it, the Coalition has uh, put a line item in $16.1 billion for, quote, decisions taken but not yet announced, end quote, which is basically, you know, election promises that they're going to make. It's a slush fund. Uh, And as we know, the election is coming up at some point uh, in 2022, before May 21st, I think is the last one. Uh, Yeah, we'll we'll just keep $16.1 billion in reserve um, for stuff to throw at um, at electorates that that need it. Now, all of that is uh, just kind of stumbling over words, um, not really being across his brief, weird sexism and and saying the quiet bit out loud when it comes to giving things to the coalition held uh, electorates. I also want to mention something that's just quite weird. Morrison was speaking at the Sydney Institute the other day And uh, as part of his speech, he said, 
It has been quite a few years, hasn't it? These last three years, floods, fires, drought, pandemic, mouse plague. I turned to Josh Frydenberg one day in Cabinet. I said, I think it's time we let your people go, Josh. Hopefully that's not too soon. It's that sort of night. And time we let your people go. This is... This is a biblical reference, but I'm not sure that Scott Morrison actually understands it. Here is, here is what it says in the Bible. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people, and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. I, 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 I don't know what Josh Frydenberg thought. Oh, does, does Scott Morrison really understand a little bit about how the Jews um, were treated at that time and what the thing meant? I don't know. Adding to the, I mean, that's just that's just weird. Adding to this, uh, I, I won't go through it all now, but I have linked on the podcast website to two uh, little dossiers from Crikey. One is titled A Dossier of Lies and Falsehoods where they've, they've just made a big long list of all the things Scott Morrison has lied about. And the second one, Democracy Lost, Three Years of Australian Democracy in Decline. And uh, that's worth looking at for all the little ways in which uh, the democratic process and, and proper governance has, uh, has been undermined. But will Scott Morrison continue uh, to be Prime Minister after the election? Well, I guess it depends uh, on those odds. Now, as uh, we have been saying on this podcast over over the last well, couple of months, really, um, the sports bet odds, because gambling is the path to true wisdom, it's not, um, uh, the betting market has shifted substantially into saying uh, it's going to be a Labor win, um, with the odds getting all the way down, or the pricing all the way down to a dollar sixty-two for a Labor win at some point, um, and uh, I think we even got down to a dollar sixty. Um, but today, as we record the 29th of December, it's it's priced at a dollar sixty-five for a Labor win, two dollars twenty for a Coalition win. Um, and and that's been the kind of figure for you know around that for a couple of weeks now. So the betting market doesn't think Morrison will win, but then they didn't last time either. The United Australia Party, though, uh, according to a friend of the pod, Elise Thomas, uh, has said the United Australia Party are banking on their voters not knowing how Parliament works. 
or anything really. You've probably seen uh, these posters around or advertisements uh, with Craig Kelly's face on it saying, celebrating 90 years since the formation of the United Australia Party and celebrating three past UAP leaders who were also Prime Minister of Australia. That's Joseph Lyons, Billy Hughes and Sir Robert Menzies. Uh, He's not really pointing out that that United Australia Party and the current one are not in the least bit related. Uh, Of course, it does have Craig Kelly's face on it, saying the next Prime Minister of Australia, leader of the United Australia Party from 2021. And a line at the bottom I love, the UAP saved Australia from the depression. Save it again. Although we're not in a depression at the moment. And it's not the same United Australia Party. But Prime Minister Craig Kelly... That does have a certain ring to it, doesn't it? I'm not very good at predicting things. Uh, Therefore, I'm going to make three predictions for 2022. Um, These aren't really terribly hard. These three predictions are, number one... Uh, the cryptocurrency and blockchain wonderland will invent something even more stupid than NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and the Australian government will invest heavily in this technology for some reason. Number two, at the federal election, we'll see the creation of Senator Pete Evans and Senator Alan Jones. I'm really looking forward to Senator Alan Jones of the One Nation Party. And prediction three, the property bubble will stubbornly refuse to burst just as it has for the past 30 years or thereabouts. And finally, the other day on uh, on the Twitter, uh, in response to somebody doing some really stupid poll, I did my own important poll. What will matter more to the world in 10 years? Will it be synergistics, directionality or counterclockwise? And I was surprised that 74% of the people said counterclockwise will matter most to the world in 10 years' time. Uh, The others were at 14 and uh, 12-ish percent, respectively. Counterclockwise. Invest in it now. Well, that's all the edict for now. Do please support the 9pm Summer Series 2022 uh, campaign at the 9pmedict.com slash summer 2022 and tell your friends about the pod. Uh, The next episode will be sometime in the new year. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands and have a great new year. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.